everyone. This week, we spoke to Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris from Imperial College's Centre for Psychedelic Research. Robin and his team focus on the clinical use of psychedelics, in particular, looking at their potential in treating depression. Robin was an absolutely fascinating guest, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi Robin, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah. Um, so to start with, we always ask what what your kind of relationship to mental health is, and and how you got into the area that 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 you're in at the moment. Yeah, that's a good question. Nice open question. Uh, wow, gosh. Um, uh, I in terms of family, I, I wouldn't say anyone in my immediate family have had any obvious psychiatric disorders <laughs> now I think um, personally uh, yeah I think as a young man I had an- anxiety issues um, and um, and I I probably experienced you know a few uh, depressive episodes or something like them. never never had any sort of formal treatment beyond taking myself to have psychoanalytic psychotherapy when I was a, a young man and then of course um, professionally I've I've been you know gravitationally pulled into mental health through just a keen interest in the topic and it was partly through a maybe more fundamental interest in the mind and the brain and then you know um, uh, I guess what's called abnormal psychology you know mental health um mental illness is just a fascinating part of of that you know greater fundamental so yeah just you know pulled in through intrigue i suppose and some personal experience with um with mental illness yeah yeah so you, in the field that you're in at the moment how did you what first attracted you to the use of uh, of psychedelics for for well, their potential for for treating mental health issues was there a kind of a side route into it or or were you always interested in in looking at that area in specific? Yeah, it was a side route. It was it was more that I was interested in them for their uh, for their more general revelatory properties. You know, I my introduction beyond some personal experience my academic introduction was finding Stan Groff's book Realms of the Human Unconscious while studying psychoanalysis and this just made it all feel sort of um, funnily enough it made it all feel tangible you know a space psychoanalysis that's that's sort of you know deeply abstract and at times more sort of art form than science and uh but here was a concrete tool you know a drug that book is all about lsd realms of the human unconscious and uh, i thought well this is the routine in a sense to um to bring you know empirical methods to psychoanalysis um so it was kind of that was the big big turning point was finding Stan Groff's book yeah and I think something that 
maybe a lot of people don't realise is that actually I think it was I can't remember the exact time frame but um, I think it was during the 50s and maybe the 60s that this was quite a well-researched area that uh, I can't remember I'm not sure how kind of empirically strong and, and, and how valid the results were from it but this was an area that was under kind of investigation for the use in kind of I think it was alcoholism and, and OCD and things like that and then it kind of went underground can you talk a little bit about 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 why that happened and 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 where the revival in the interest in it came from yeah sure so the 1950s and, and 1950 itself is when the first English language scientific paper on LSD is published LSD is discovered by Albert Hoffman in 1943, but it takes seven years before America, I suppose, turn on to uh, to LSD. And then, you know, this paper, Bush and Johnson, 1950, um, is, to my knowledge, the first uh, scientific paper on, on LSD and its effects uh, on the mind. Um, and so throughout the 50s, uh, there is this wave of a very academic and clinical psychiatric interest in LSD and the bit of mescaline and then as we come into the 19 um, around 1957 we have uh, magic mushrooms being um, uh, researched again Albert Hoffman is the first to isolate psilocybin from these mushrooms and then um, and then actually synthesize it and he, he calls the compound psilocybin and um, and then there's a famous article in Life magazine um, about you know this um, amateur mycologist who goes into the into Mexico and has a, a magic mushroom ceremony with um, this uh, curandera uh, Maria Sabina. Um, and so the fifties is academic. It's it's you know it's it's very professional and and lab coats and very formal in in a sense the way you think of the fifties or or I do. And then in the sixties, things get a little more more playful, and you have these kind of uh, where you have a few clownish characters like um, uh, Timothy Leary's the most famous, uh, actually a Harvard psychology professor who turns on first to magic mushrooms and then LSD. And he kind of, uh, yeah, kind of goes awry in a way because he becomes this populist uh, uh, figure, popularizing figure, sort of um, promoting quite free use. And he's speaking at the, what do they call it? The human being in, uh, in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, I think it is. And, you know, to, to, I don't know how many people, but, you know, big crowds. And he says, turn on, tune in and drop out. And So anyway, the culture starts shifting into this sort of LSD promotional thing. And it gets caught up in the politics of the time where you have, on the one hand, the countercultural movement, anti-war, anti-Vietnam uh, war and pro-civil rights and and um, and then on the other hand, you have the deep, you know, heavy, powerful establishment and 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 they win is the short story. And LSD that was entirely legal um, until the mid to late 1960s becomes controlled. And the unfortunate thing is that that controlling of um, the drug and, and its use and, and 
you know supply has a massive impact on the research and it i don't know why it happened that way but the research was essentially banned and and died as sort of well i was going to say slow it was quite a quick death um you know from the 1970s you have the the is it the misuse of drugs act coming in in 1970 under um gosh what's his name the uh the famous American politician, president, uh, Nixon. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, it's a UN um, policy that uh, the UK and other countries sign up to. And so basically that kills psychedelic research for decades. Um, and it's only sort of into the mid nineties and then the noughties that, uh, we start to see what's what now we refer to or most people have been referring to as the psychedelic renaissance yeah i think that's it's it's super interesting the kind of the the perception of 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 these substances in in my generation is that they're kind of um rightly or wrongly associated with kind of hippies and 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 that kind of thing when even someone like me who's pretty engaged in in mental health and the mental health literature until last year i had no real idea about the the fairly solid scientific background that that they had in 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 the kind of research community so how how much i suppose damage i don't know if damage is the right word but how much damage did um did that kind of association with the counterculture and 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 perhaps figures like timothy leary do to the the kind of scientific efficacy of, of, of using the drugs to treat, um, I think specifically addictions, which which had fairly good scientific backing from the 50s. How much damage did that do, do you think? Yeah, well, it, uh, it certainly tripped up progress. And, you know, opinions differ on where to place the blame and Tim, the likes of Timothy Leary have been arguably scapegoated and, and sort of blamed for the collapse of psychedelic science. I, I don't know. It is what it is. And um, uh, it, it happened how it happened. And, you know, I think the greater blame, if we're going to play the blame game, is on the is on the deep establishment that, that, that stopped the research that shouldn't have happened. Um, and uh, there is this cultural baggage that psychedelics still carry where you hear psychedelic and you, you think of, you know, psychedelic uh, art and colours and, you know, fractal patterns and psychedelic music and the Beatles and all their colourful attire. And so there's that baggage is that, you know, that in and of itself isn't damaging. It sort of trivialises the topic. I think people think of that before they realize that psychedelic means psyche revealing and then oh my goodness how interesting so let's talk about the work that you've been doing recently and 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 the the results that that's garnered and i think one of the important things that that you did was compare the use of psych you can talk about how it was administered and things like that but the importance of comparing it to uh, I can't remember which specific antidepressant it was, but comparing it to an antidepressant um, and, and why that's important. Yeah, so we we recently completed this trial 
um, and had it um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the, the compare so there's two conditions, uh, psilocybin therapy, and people have two sessions with that, and they get quite a big dose, 25 milligrams. Um, and then uh, um, the other condition, so two groups, as I said, and it's a random allocation to the group, and that's all done in this uh, uh, blinded way, so people don't know what they're going to get, and the people running the study, you know, don't know what what condition someone's going into. So you call that a double-blind randomized control trial. And the comparator condition is escitalopram. So it's a very selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, an SSRI. And uh, the most famous one is Prozac, fluoxetine. Um, another famous one is citalopram. Um, and uh, escitalopram is, is a kind of turbo version of citalopram. And... Uh, yeah, it's what considered one of the best performing SSRIs. Meta-analyses have shown it has you know, pretty good efficacy and tolerability relative to other SSRI antidepressants. So that was a head-to-head, and people get six weeks of daily uh, escitalopram if they go into that condition. We standardize everything and control for everything. So all the psychological support that you get in the psilocybin condition you also get in the escitalopram condition so that people couldn't see the results and say, you know, oh, you've, it was the psychotherapy that got people better in the psilocybin arm. Um, yeah, so we've, we've done that trial and the results were really interesting. They quite emphatically, although you wouldn't get it from the abstract of the paper. I, I think the fair thing to say is they quite emphatically favoured uh, psilocybin. Uh, virtually every measure, I think it was over 95% of the measures, because it was only one one that, that didn't separate significantly, statistically significantly in favor of psilocybin. And that happened to be what we call the primary outcome, or the, the measure that we selected before the trial to be the one that we would make the main comparison on and SOTS law, whatever you want to call it conspired the universe conspired to make that the only measure that that salasavin didn't you know significantly win on uh, and so hence you know the papers reported in this way as there's no difference here nothing to see here and that's been an uncomfortable experience because i think it's misleading to the, the reader and to the public and i think people will get that if they look at the results um so I very much encourage people to actually read that paper, just read the abstract, look at the results, look at the supplementary material, and, and then, you know, make a reasoned uh, interpretation, what they think it means. As someone who takes um, an SSRI, the advantage of something like psilocybin that immediately sticks out to me is the comparative lack of, of side effects. Um, can you talk a bit about that and why that why that is yeah. important? Yeah, yeah. I guess you know when you're taking a drug every day, you've got drug in in the body and blood all the time, really. Um, and uh, and so it's just the way it is that um, there's going to be some side effects there. And some of the classic ones with SSRIs are things like um, 
Well, actually, drowsiness uh, was higher in the escitalopram condition. What we call an, an emotional blunting, which is a kind of um, shallowing of the peaks and troughs of, of emotionality. Um, we had actually had higher rates of anxiety in the escitalopram condition. Um, and uh, sexual dysfunction as well was there. Um, yeah, so there was a, um, it was quite a, quite a range. But I mean, if you look at the sheer number of side effects, it was actually quite equal in the two conditions. And the reason for that was that a big dose of psilocybin often gives you a headache the next day. And so it was all those headaches that, that counted to kind of create this balanced number of side effects. But the nature of the side effects were different. And those transient headaches are, you know, they're transient. So you have them the next day, you might take an aspirin and and people would generally rate them as mild in severity. So. Yeah. So looking at how actually, um, how that you think psilocybin actually works to kind of uh, to be effective. So I've what I've read is that it kind of helps to. I think I might have been you that said it, but um, a really useful analogy that I found was that it kind of. I think it was a, a snow globe analogy where it kind of shakes up a snow globe and lets things settle, and then from that you can kind of create new. Uh, new neural pathways that uh and it kind of breaks the the kind of ruminative neural pathways in in something called the default mode network is that um is that something have i misinterpreted that or is that something that's that that's true so generally speaking that's the sort of mostly the model i would say kind of the hypothesis albeit with um you know bits of indirect uh data supporting it and so it is a metaphor that snow globe analogy that um, that I I um, came up with, um, and uh, yeah. So the idea is that when you fall into a mental illness, whether it's a depression, a eating disorder, a image disorder, you know, like body dysmorphic disorder, or a addiction, or some obsessive symptoms. You know, there's something common to these um, these conditions, and it is that the mind gets rooted in a particular way, and that way is you might call it maladaptive, and then it gets reinforced, um, and uh, and then you know the question becomes a question is well why does that happen? Um, does it have a function? And, and increasingly, I think that's a really interesting question. It's kind of a different question to um, how do psychedelics work in, in this presentation, but it's an important one. And so just a, a couple of words on that. I think it probably happens as a sort of defensive, it's a defensive function, you know, whatever the kind of underlying cause, let's call it a combination of vulnerability and maybe some genetic contribution to that generally a kind of smudgy vulnerability and then and then life <laughs> and uh, whether that's a distinct trauma or complex trauma or one kind of key distinction that i've been reading about is the fact that you can't just give someone one of these substances without having 
um, the proper kind of support in place. So what, what in, in your trial, what support did you have around Yeah. before they took the, yeah. Sorry, That's okay. We, we had some good, uh, good support. We had a very good therapy team headed up by Rosalind Watts, a clinical psychologist. And uh, so we had training um, uh, for the therapy team and uh, some, you know, experienced old heads provided uh, input into that training um historically we've we've been trained up by someone called bill richards who was actually doing research with lsd in the late 60s and um, before it was shut down so you know he was around in that initial wave of research and and is now active and actually has a center uh, in his name in maryland in the u.s uh, the bill richards center doing treatment with psilocybin therapy now but anyway, we had we we had the therapy, and the therapy has three parts. It has the preparation ahead of the experience, which is all about building rapport and a sense of trust um, with uh, the therapists, uh, specifically the therapists who look after a patient will usually be two people. Um, we like to go with the male and female, but it, that's just um, maybe a preference uh, rather than a hard rule. Um, it may be that different genders work for different people. Um, but so we have those two and you build trust beforehand as part of the prep ahead of the session. And then the session itself is supervised. The patient lies with eye shades on and listens to music throughout. There's minimal dialogue going into the experience. We might do some guided imagery and and like a body scan where you describe, you know, sensations in different parts of the body moving up through the body. That's so good to kind of center people and bring them into the here and now. Uh, and then the integration is what happens afterwards. And really, that's just an opportunity to talk through the experience. For the therapist, the main role is listening. Uh, and for the patient, it is that opportunity to, to share um, to be heard, to reconnect, and also to try and consolidate and reinforce some of the healthy realizations that will have emerged both during the experience and in this aftermath period as well. Yeah, so it's very much a kind of integrated process throughout throughout the experience rather than just... It is. Yeah, and I, I think people don't know that. They could easily take a big dose of a psychedelic and, and then it just feel the insanity of it and not really get any benefits and just think, how is this a, an antidepressant intervention and, and more? Because it's just, it's insane, you know, it's wild. And that is part of the picture, but you uh, it's all about combining this potent, you know, mind-shaking drug with, a very caring, you know, good quality of psychotherapy, and there lies the uh, the synergy. Yeah, and I think your your work specifically focused on on um, on people with uh, depression that was very hard to treat or hadn't previously worked with other um, forms of therapy. And I was wondering earlier, you were talking about the way that. Um, that ruminative um, conditions seem to react quite well to um, to these drugs. So, do you, can you see any potential in in using it to treat 
chronic pain so not necessarily for people with you know acute injuries or something like that but where the the kind of pathways become very set um, in 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 feeling that certain actions bring about certain pain so once you've moved beyond the kind of acute stage towards the chronic pain because because I can see very strong similarities between uh, the kind of mindsets of chronic pain and, and depression and, and OCD and even something like uh, an eating disorder. Yeah, yeah, there, there are strong commonalities there around a kind of reinforced way of thinking about things um, and maybe behaving if it's, yeah, if we're thinking of, say, an addiction or compulsive behaviours. Um, and so, yeah, the, the idea is that the psychedelic can come in and um, and shake things up. Yeah, that snow globe uh, analogy. And that, that can sort of provide an opportunity for what you might call a, a de-weighting or a recalibration of the weighting of different ways of thinking and, and feeling and being um, and acting. Um, and uh, so that that recalibration analogy is quite a useful one. It, 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 it's sort of saying, you know, here is an opportunity um, for a relearning, uh, a healthy relearning. Uh, and that relearning might involve a bit of unlearning of reinforced ways of thinking about things. And and um, yeah. And rather than like a new learning, like taking on new stuff, it, it's more like a recalibration or a reset. Um, it's sort of like going back to the beginning, back back to basics and starting afresh. Um, so that's the analogy. And, and, and if it's chronic pain and you're living with this constant reminder, this constant thought of, of pain and of obviously sensation, really it's, it's on the it's on the perception and the interpretation of the sensation that we believe we can make the greatest impact. So you might think of the therapeutic model as one of sort of learning how to live with the pain, the sensation, um, how, how you look on it and how you look on yourself. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. So rather than it be an analgesic, it's more like, uh, you know, resetting the, the way that you're looking on the pain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to kind of bring us on to the last couple of questions, where do you see um, things like psychedelic-assisted therapy in 10, 20 years' time? Where, where do you think it, it's going as a, as a method? That's a good question. So, I mean, in 10 years' time, I think we'll have psychedelic clinics uh, across America, I would say, particularly in the progressive uh, states um, and Canada. It will be big in Canada, particularly if the liberals stay in. Um, and in the UK and Europe, in 10 years' time, we'll, we'll have the same, I think. Uh, we'll have psychedelic clinics and we will probably see that psilocybin therapy and MDMA therapy are licensed by the medicine regulators to be given to certain populations. Um, there might even be change in the legislation on say magic mushrooms where they're, they're more in a kind of cannabis uh, uh, class 
um, than the ridiculous Schedule 1 Class A uh, status that they carry at the moment, which is so at odds with the with their relative arms. Um, yeah, sorry, can you go, Schedule 1 means that it's very hard to get research in them and they kind of ca carry the same punishments as, as, a, as a Class A drug, is that right? Yeah, it is. And, and the formal definition is that this is a drug with significant abuse potential and no recognised medicinal value. And so I would say already the weight of the evidence is that psychedelics have medicinal value used in the right way. Um, and uh, so that, that definition is just at odds with the scientific evidence already. And so it's just a matter of time. In a sense, it's a waiting game for the inevitable that sounds very presumptuous but unless there's some kind of sideswipe kind of jackknifing incident something that we haven't foreseen uh i do feel that it's just it is a it's a logical progression that psychedelic medicine will become part of the you know armamentarium is it you know the toolkit clinicians within within the next 10 years. So the other aspect of, of the Schedule 1 that you were talking about is the potential for addiction. And from from what I've read, uh, psychedelic drugs carry a very low low potential for addiction. Is that is that correct? That is, that is correct, yeah. So, um, and, and the reason for it is that the effects aren't rewarding. Like they don't make you feel good in a simple, basic kind of way i think most people under the influence of a psychedelic they are there's some degree of struggle and 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 a requirement um conscious requirement in a way to sort of let go to surrender to the experience but it's not something you can easily do in i don't know a social context um, or an everyday context you really need to have a secure settled environment um yeah so um uh yeah very very intense effects often and am i right in thinking that places like i think it is it oregon or portland is i can't remember which is the town and which is the state but they've is it that they've legalized the therapy or they've legalized the drugs i can't quite remember that's right yeah so so tom and sheree eckert uh, um, really uh, led that initiative in the, it's the state of Oregon and they're based in Portland um, and uh, they were successful they managed to to do all the different stages to get psilocybin therapy on the ballot uh, in the presidential elections in the state of Oregon people voting could also vote on the legalization of psilocybin therapy and they won. They they got you know the majority of the people of Oregon voting to 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 uh, to support you know this rollout of psilocybin therapy. Tragically, um, before the new year, um, Sherry uh, uh, died, um, and so it's a, a you know remarkable sort of story that she managed to to do this and. Uh, out of the blue, tragically, a, a heart attack. Uh, we lost her, um, but uh, at least she managed to see to see the success. You know, remarkable success in in getting this through. And 
yeah, the Oregon model is such a sort of epic tale, really, that they they did get this through. And, and now over the next two years, so less now, uh, is the planning towards the actual rollout of psilocybin therapy within the health authority system uh, within Oregon. So it, it's a regulated system. It's still healthcare, although it's not um, constrained to people with a diagnosed um, psychiatric disorder, um, but it's regulated. So it's a very forward thinking model. It's a model I like. Uh, I think it can work and I think it could bring a lot of good in Oregon and then um, other states um, being inspired and, and trying to go the same way. Yeah, I think that's a positive place to leave the, the discussion about psychedelics. And, and one thing we always ask ask people is how you personally look after your own mental health um well my kids are great teachers they both bring stress but also you know a kind of uh, down-to-earthness and so I'm grateful to them and my wife my family I'm very lucky in that regard and so if there's something I do it's spending time with them and then when they go to bed if I can meditation mindfulness of breath and 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 meta meta meditation yeah. that's cool i just um last year i i got my qualification as a mindfulness instructor because that was something that that really helped me uh with 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 pain and and depression um and i think is is there potential to kind of use that as uh i don't know if aftercare is the right word but after you have your your psilocybin session very much so yeah but bit of a plug I'm, I'm developing an app called my delica that is all about providing educational material and pointers in the direction of things like meditation uh, to try and um, I suppose keep people well uh, uh, develop a kind of flexibility and healthy flexibility so uh, yeah very much it, it's more sort of before and after rather than during I would say that, that meditation has the greatest value when used in conjunction with psychedelics yeah and um anything else where can we find more about uh the work you're doing at imperial um, yeah. other projects like you just mentioned yeah I, I try and put everything on twitter any new papers um i'm moving to the states in mid-august uh, to ucsf in san francisco um uh so but i'll be tweeting and uh, my delica as well we're just we're just building it right now but we'll launch it uh later this year so people could search my delica and find the the landing page and subscribe for for the app when it's ready so does that mean the is the the center for i can't remember the exact name the center for psychedelic research at imperial is that going to carry on or is that it goes on, it okay. goes on, and I hope it goes on for a long time. It was founded by some very generous philanthropists and their support continues and the funds that were brought in continue to support a good few years of, of top quality research. David Nutt, uh, you, know, you couldn't imagine a steadier pair of hands taking over, so he'll he'll be the head of the centre and, and then David Arizzo, my close colleague and friend um, he's very much uh, involved in the program of research that will be run through the center as well brilliant i think that's a positive place to leave it thank you so much robin that's been, you, been really fascinating pleasure
Hi everyone, I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a quick note to say that although the things I discussed with the guest we may find helpful, I'm not a trained medical professional. If you're struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or speak to an organisation like Samaritans on 116 123.